0: Welcome to Redefining Risk, a podcast series by Regulation Asia, focused on dissecting and decoding the emerging regulatory uh, risks faced by financial institutions across Asia. Today we delve into the world's most pressing environmental challenges and the groundbreaking solutions for driving change. Our lens focuses on, on the cornerstone of climate change action, the voluntary carbon market. Picture a tomorrow where the carbon footprint has dwindled, where the unity in climate action isn't just a hope but a lived reality. The path to such a world is intricate and every method, every solution we utilise matters intensely. And this, this is what brings us here today to delve into the latest in carbon markets. with Matt Chan from JP Morgan Chase to really delve into a lot of the work that's underway there. Matt, welcome to today. Thanks Brad, great to be here. As a starting point, or to kick everything off, I mean, could you just tell me a little bit more about the bank's role in supporting decarbonisation and from your perspective, one, where carbon fit markets fit in, but also JP Morgan's role in, in all of this? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think banks
1: um, do have a role to play in supporting their clients' decarbonisation. Um, there is a role for carbon markets within that, but actually more importantly, you know, when we think about our environmental sustainability um, approach, we think in terms of three pillars, so um, we think about scaling green solutions for example, and so that's everything from you know, how do we mobilise capital to support climate action, we have a $1 trillion target over 10 years And that's to mobilize capital towards technology, towards renewables, towards carbon capture technologies, for example. Um, Within Scouting green Solutions, we also think about, um, you know, do we provide climate-related solutions to consumers and investors, so financing sustainable investment uh, products for asset management, for example. Um, And it's also about how we we work with our clients. So we have a Centre for Carbon Transition um, that works with clients in terms of understanding their ESG needs, understanding their transition, Um, trajectory, thinking about their business strategy around how how do they uh, achieve decarbonisation, whether that's business models, whether that's through mergers and acquisitions. Um, And a small piece of that could also be, you know, thinking about their own operational sustainability. So, you know, do they um, get involved in carbon markets, for example. We also think about how we meet our needs responsibly, so we've got got paris aligned uh, commitments and targets around different sectors which are most uh, carbon intensive, you know, oil and gas, electric power, uh, auto manufacturing, for example, we added iron and steel, we added cement and aviation about a year ago and we continue to uh, add to that. And then finally, the third pillar is around how we minimize our operational impact. And so that's a range of things across environmental different environmental KPIs, you know paper, you know where we source that from, um, reducing water use, but, in, but obviously importantly thinking about energy. So we have uh, targets around reducing our scope one and two, Uh, greenhouse emissions from our operations, so by 40% by 2030, for example. We also have um, uh, KPIs around where we source uh, energy, so for example, making sure that we source renewable energy for 100% of our global operations. And then finally, we do have a carbon um, uh, management program, so this is where we have a KPI. In addition to the real um, efforts that we're making to reduce our energy use and reduce our carbon emissions, we also have a, a carbon management program. And there we have uh, targets around maintaining carbon neutral uh, operations and that's where our carbon credits uh, program comes into play. Okay, so it's not just about offsetting that? No, certainly not. I mean, a lot of what we're doing, a lot of what our um, strategy around climate and supporting our our clients' carbon transition uh, is around engaging with clients, thinking about how in the real economy we decarbonise um, certain economic activities. How we work with clients to decarbonise their business models. Um, there is a role for carbon markets, but it's but it's part of a much much larger suite of uh, tools and uh, approaches that we need to deploy. The the role that they play really is around enabling us to accelerate that, and also uh, complementing uh, what we can do in the real economy. So, as I mentioned um,
0: previously, around hard uh, to abate sectors, for example. Let's take a step back. I mean, originally, you know, I, I know that you guys put out recently a, a white paper. I mean, what are the motivations be, behind you guys getting actively involved in putting out such white papers uh, and kind of really addressing these voluntary carbon markets? Yeah, look, um, as I
1: said, you know, our business and our thinking um, obviously touch upon carbon markets. They they play a very important role in terms of decarbonisation. We wanted to put out our paper, which is the carbon market principles. Um, it really um, provides our thinking in terms of how do you strengthen voluntary carbon markets. So obviously there's some challenges at the moment, um, but we actually see, we, we actually see that a real strong need for confidence to develop and for those markets to scale. So we wanted to um, put them in perspective. We wanted to make sure that people weren't thinking of them as a silver bullet. You know, they're an important um, tool to, to, to use in terms of enabling low carbon transition to occur at pace and scale, so it's about accelerating both in the short-term as well as long-term solutions. Um, they can play a bit of a role in terms of mobilizing some of the capital um, and reducing some of the costs to a widespread deployment of uh, certain climate solutions. Um, but they also, at the same time, face several challenges. And so what we wanted to do with the paper was just lay out you know, our thinking in terms of what some of those challenges are, educate um, folks and stakeholders about you know, different components of, different, of, of the carbon markets, but also um, we provided a bit of an overview in terms of some of the criteria that we use when we're thinking about our um, significant carbon ma- ma- uh, management program. And so we lay out some of the principles that we, we use when we're thinking about carbon offsetting, et cetera. But of course, this is evolving. Um, this is our thinking, the paper represents our thinking in terms of where things are to date, but obviously it's not the last word as this um, uh, important market evolves.
0: Clearly you're, you're distinguishing between voluntary and compliance markets, I mean can you tell me a little bit more about that and I guess more importantly, um, you know, from your perspective and the research that you've been doing, I mean how are carbon markets most likely going to be scaled to meet global change targets? Yeah. Well
1: actually that's a great question because sometimes there's conflation between um, compliance carbon markets and voluntary carbon markets. So. Um, There's a lot of activity in voluntary carbon markets, but at the same time, um, uh, compliance carbon markets also play a role. Just to distinguish them, um, compliance carbon markets, regulated mechanisms, uh, generally established by governments, sometimes national governments, sometimes uh, local governments, um, they're often uh, tied to cap and trade frameworks, so what that does is enable um, efficient allocation of emissions to the most valuable activity, so you introduce a market mechanism. Um, they can also be tied with national at the national level to, for example, emissions reductions commitments, and so what that does is tie uh, a market mechanism to uh, enabling um, certain emissions uh, levels to be met at a jurisdictional level. So that's uh, compliance carbon markets. Voluntary carbon markets also obviously uh, utilise market uh, int- uh, mechanisms. Um, What they do is, well, they're an important and emerging tool in terms of supporting net zero transition, and they're often driven by uh, individuals. They could be driven by organisations and other entities that voluntarily choose to um, reduce their carbon footprint or offset their emissions. So participants could purchase carbon credits or offsets, and they could be generated by projects around reforestation or renewable energy initiatives, and then they retire them to offset a corresponding volume uh, of, of emissions. Now, more distinction, more nuances, of course. Um, Voluntary carbon markets can also allow for the trade in both avoidance, um, also referred to as as reduction, or uh, removal credits, and so there's a distinction uh, between the two. So some of the benefits around uh, voluntary carbon markets are around flexibility. So that enables um, where and how emissions are reduced or removed, so that helps lower the aggregate cost of reducing net emissions. So that's very important when it comes to hard-to-abate sector. So that's one uh, benefit. Another one is scaling. So if there's existing projects, so you're, enab- you're enabling or, or utilising uh, market mechanisms basically to drive capital towards existing and um, the most scalable solutions, so that brings efficiency. So as opposed to individual firms doing their own uh, projects, for example. There's an the economic upside. So actually, you know, the fact that um, capital can go towards these projects that can also incentivise. So for example, for example incentivise innovation uh, with the potential to further accelerate decarbonisation. And then fourthly, they also um, create a range of potential uh, side benefits, whether that's
0: environmental, social, economic, so those co-benefits. So we've obviously just discussed the benefits, but what do you see are the challenges and the realities of carbon markets and the relationship of decarbonisation? You've already, already mentioned uh, that, you know, voluntary carbon markets will not be a silver bullet. So realistically, uh, will it be carbon markets alone that achieve the net zero targets? Yeah, so this is where things need to be put into perspective. So this is a great question.
1: Um, there are some sometimes misunderstandings, so this is a great opportunity to talk about those. Um, it is in the interest of all companies to pursue efforts to avoid, reduce, neutralise their emissions uh, in their own operations and across their value chains, probably yeah. in that order. Um, but ca- and carbon credits shouldn't be used um, to unreasonably forestall those um, efforts. So that's the first thing. The second misnomer is that we can use carbon markets to, to drive all the capital required um, towards climate solutions and so um, They are an important uh, mechanism for that, but they're not uh, alone going to generate the level of capital and investment required to drive decarbonisation across the global economy. Um, However, uh, in the broader suite of solutions and tools needed to achieve transition, carbon markets can play a really important role in both complementing such efforts. So they have a role to play, just as you see in terms of how we manage our operational sustainability um, and also how we're guiding our clients um, or supporting them. and, and of course they, they provide that real economy um, price signal, that incentive um, to think about carbon emissions, to think about that externality,
0: which, which of course up until um, today we, we probably haven't accounted for at the global level. I mean, but carbon markets is all about offsetting. What about reducing emissions?
1: So reducing overall emissions is generally still the most effective and cost effective way to, to lower co- uh, carbon concentrations in the atmosphere. However, Think about the short term, carbon credits and offsetting can accelerate to to low carbon transition. It's also important in terms of hard to abate sectors. So there's some sectors that are very difficult, very costly to um, bring down carbon emissions. So aviation would be an example of that. So even long term, they have a role to play. Um, Overall, credits also help to scale effective solutions for carbon removal. And so that will be part of the the solution uh, longer term. And so they also play a role in the interim uh,
0: to help um, scale that okay but yeah and apologies if this is a silly question but how do you differentiate between avoidance and removal credits yep sure so avoidance credits they're generated when activities
1: reduce or prevent emissions uh, that otherwise uh, would have occurred so examples of that would be avoided deforestation for example that could also be energy efficiency or fuel switching Whereas removal credits are when you're taking existing carbon from the atmosphere, so it could be historical, uh, historic um, uh, carbon emissions and you're taking that, you're removing that from from the atmosphere and you're storing that or sequestering that. Um, It then breaks down into two other categories, of course. There's nature-based solutions for removal and there's also engineered or technical solutions. Um, On the removal side, on the nature side, forestry, for example, oceans, when we talk about uh, mangroves and seaweeds, that's removal. Um, A technical example probably would be direct air capture and storage and mineralisation. And so there's strengths and weaknesses of each, Um, avoidance credits, uh, although these activities do not address the concentration of greenhouse gases uh, already in the atmosphere they can also help to, um, they can help to make business as usual emissions a little bit lower and also um, they tend to be a bit more uh, affordable. Removal credits are generated by activities where we take out greenhouse gases from the atmosphere um, nature-based solutions tend to store carbon for shorter periods however um, but then at the same time they're more mature um, approaches and more accessible engineered and technical solutions tend to be a little bit more um, nascent less developed and a little bit more expensive so there's there's many different types of solutions and ways to think about these things at the end of the day they probably all have a role to play it's really important when we're having these conversations to actually distinguish between, you know, are we talking about avoidance credits? Are we talking about removal? Are we talking
0: about technical uh, solutions? Are we talking about nature solutions? So um, these are great uh, conversations to have. As a business, you must be well aware of the, the con- controversies around kind of this sector, especially around validating uh, and it's the integrity of carbon credits. So what methodologies, frameworks do you have in place really around ensuring, you know, it is what it says it is? Sure. Well, we do have a pretty large carbon
1: uh, offsetting um, program. Uh, as I mentioned, we're a very large organisation. We also put time and energy and resources into making sure that, you know, what we are um, uh, engaged in uh, meets our criteria and we're comfortable with what we're doing. And so what we did with the paper is actually published some of the criteria that we use. There's, there's around eight. Mm-hmm. Um, we call them the core carbon market principles. And obviously, it's an opportunity for people to, to take a look at them. I mean, one is you've got to make sure that, um, the emission reductions are actually real and so what we um, one of the criteria uh, that we use is to make sure that we can have um, a way of proving that um, the, the the emissions have taken place that also means they need to be measurable so um, we want to make sure that thing, the any um, carbon removal or avoidance is uh, quantifiable measurable it's additional so we want to make sure um, specifically that when we're involved in the project the carbon emissions uh, would not have been um, reduced uh, without that particular project, um, and in fact, um, and without that project, the impact wouldn't have taken place. They also need to be unique and traceable, so we need to we need to be able to um, uh, attach uh, the carbon emissions with uh, the different um, uh, carbon credits. They also need to be independently verified. We also want to make sure there's no leakage, so that's thinking about you know mm-hmm. carbon reductions in one market, perhaps. Being offset by or or, or actually um, uh, resulting in, in carbon being emitted in in another market, so that's leakage of course that we want to ensure. We think about durability, um, is it permanent? We think about climate equity, so, so some of the broader concerns. And obviously, we have to weigh that. We have to weigh that with costs. So we think about you know, is it is it um, does it make sense from a cost perspective? Does it make sense in terms of some of the other co-benefits? Does it make sense in terms of scalability? Um, And we also think about innovation. So, you know, when we look at a particular project, does that support um, the development of carbon
0: solutions? Does that support uh, carbon markets in the longer term? So there's some of the the criteria that we use. I mean, those eight criteria in many ways speak to many of the core challenges I think that the market's been having. I mean, from your perspective, you know, are there any other challenges that need to be addressed to, to really build up market confidence so the markets have, I guess, greater scalability? Sure. So I think... You know, we do need to further grow and we need to
1: strengthen um, the market. Um, we also need to think about, you know, what is needed for this to happen and there's probably several significant um, and interrelated challenges around that. So there's different components, of course, to markets. There's, you know, project developers, you've got standards, you've got registries, you've got verifiers, you've also got brokers, so market participants, brokers, traders, retailers, retailers, and then, of course, the end purchases. So one of the things that um, I would focus my thoughts on is around the quality of supply. So perhaps there's a lack of high quality supply, so that obviously uh, feeds into perhaps a a lack of confidence at times. Market integrity, and so that goes back to what I was talking about uh, earlier, which is about thinking about, you know, is there a variation in the availability and quality of information to assess um, credit quality? And so that results in confidence. Um, And then there's a couple of other things you know, just the complexity of the markets. And I know we're going to talk about, you know, Asia Pacific, for example, and international developments, but there's a whole lot of complexity um, in terms of, you know, different schemes, different ways of approaching these things, and quite a fragmented um, uh, l- a landscape. And then the final thing that I think is worth noting is just the maturity of the market. So we're thinking particularly around voluntary carbon markets. You know, they are relatively immature, they're relatively nascent. Um, there's probably a lack of support Um, for more sophisticated um, ways of trading, for example. And so this might reduce liquidity and also the ability to attract different kinds of uh, market participants. And so probably in aggregate, some of these issues um, need to be developed and looked at over time. However, I will probably focus mostly on the quality of supply, but also um, market integrity from the perspective of the the
0: quality of information um, needed to assess the the credit uh, quality. You'd mentioned fragmentation, and you know, in the past twelve months, I think we've seen a flurry of papers from the likes of ISDA IOSCO, uh as well as from a Sifma. Um, what is the, the what are the what are the goals of the objectives of all of these kind of papers? And I guess more importantly, what is the role of the, the regulators in helping bridge this fragmentation? Well, look, again,
1: it, it makes sense, and it makes sense to really think about comp- compliance carbon markets versus voluntary carbon markets because you know they are different. I mean, IOSCO... Um, did come out uh, nearly a year ago, or perhaps it was over a year ago, um, with, with a paper on uh, compliance carbon markets and also um, voluntary carbon markets. Um, I think, for, from a compliance carbon markets perspective, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, how do you think about the primary um, market versus the secondary market? How do you uh, ensure there's predictability around primary market decisions? Also, structures for primary markets. You know, what are the allocation mechanisms? Um, how do you make sure this market filled? So that's compliance carbon markets. I think for voluntary carbon markets, the story is still unfolding, mm-hmm. very new, still evolving. We still need room to innovate and for them to evolve and for um, business standards uh, and international standards to develop. Um, so a lot of the discussion is around you know whether the work of um, voluntary carbon market governance bodies, so some of those are some of those are industry led, whether that work could be um, leveraged to greater um, encourage standardisation and also think about these supply-side integrity issues. Um, there's probably a role for uh, regulators um, to play in terms of uh, continuing, continuously monitoring um, the development of the linkages between compliance carbon markets and voluntary carbon markets to see how they develop. There's probably a need for ongoing industry dialogue. Um, to ensure that uh, as those markets develop, the different participants can, can uh, play, play their role in terms of informing how they, um, how they develop. But all the regulation, when we think about regulation, we probably need to make sure that it's both proportionate, uh, particularly for voluntary carbon markets to allow some of the innovation to, to evolve and for
0: uh, some of those business standards and uh, international standards to um, develop over time. I know when we're talking about carbon, and especially a lot of the research, it is on a global basis, but given your focus and role in Asia, I mean, what do you see that's next for carbon markets in Asia across the short, medium and longer term? Well, look, there's a lot happening in Asia Pacific. Um, and in fact, the, the Sigma has just, uh, as you alluded
1: to, um, launched a paper very recently. It's a great um, discussion document. It's, it's there for market participants. It's been written for policymakers and also regulators. And it also has a great summary and overview in terms of some of the developments happening uh, in Asia Pacific. It is a little bit fragmented, it is a little bit um, complex. I mean, right here, we're recording from Hong Kong. Um, the Hong Kong Exchange has soft-launched its uh, core climate uh, program. That was done, I think, last year, uh, and it continues to develop. Um, it's focused on um, providing voluntary carbon credit connectivity between Hong Kong, China, and also global markets. Um, and I mean, it includes trading, custody, and settlement functions for corporates, investors, and pr- uh, project owners. Um, and also, um, it recently signed an MOU uh, with the China Emissions Exchange uh, in Shenzhen, which which brings us to China. China has had a national emissions trading scheme, so a compliance carbon markets for some time. That's been very focused on the power sector, power generation, but is expected to um, slowly. Um, encapsulate other uh, carbon intensive sectors Um, but on the VCM side or the voluntary carbon market side um, there is also the certified emissions reduction scheme where certified emissions reductions are traded. Um, That particular scheme was halted in 2017 but is expected to be relaunched soon so again there's a potential for connectivity between what Hong Kong is doing and that scheme. Singapore on the other hand has a carbon tax Again, a different mechanism to think about carbon emissions at the national level for them. Um, But it also has a voluntary carbon market in Climate Impact X, and that's that's been around for a a number of years. That provides a marketplace for businesses to buy carbon credits uh, generated by uh, projects that have been curated. It provides auction and uh, exchange uh, platforms and also clearing and settlement. Japan, compliance markets, so predominantly compliance markets at the national and local levels. Australia, um, fruits. For for Australia, there's quite a a number of moving pieces. Um, To meet its emissions reductions targets, it has a combination of an an Emissions Reductions Fund, so an ERF, and that's where the federal government seeks to meet uh, Australia's reduction targets by purchasing, so a market mechanism, purchasing Australian carbon credits, uh, credit units, ACCUs, um, and what they represent is um, carbon abatement abatement contracts with entities who are paid to undertake eligible um, mitigation projects. That's also coupled with the safeguard mechanism, which you may have heard about, and that's basically um, a safeguard to impose emissions restrictions on some of the largest businesses um, in Australia, um, so that the ACCUs that are purchased by the federal government aren't offset by increases in VAU emissions. Now, on top of that voluntary carbon markets, there's a component there. The Clean Energy Regulator in uh, Australia is in the process of developing uh, an Australian carbon exchange, and so, What that enables is some of those ACCUs, which the federal government has been paying, uh, purchasing, uh, that enables private sector players to to purchase those as well. And so that's their way of setting up a voluntary carbon market uh, in Australia. India, VCM and, uh, sorry, voluntary carbon market and the compliance uh, carbon market has been developed. Korea has long had an emissions trading scheme, KETS, um, and the private sector is looking to develop a voluntary carbon market. Uh, Indonesia is expected to launch both a uh, um, compliance and voluntary carbon market. Malaysia um, Bursa a carbon exchange, so that's the world's first Sharia compliant carbon exchange. And then, of course, New Zealand has a carbon trade um, uh, system, so it's compliance carbon markets. But they're also looking to, to um, establish a voluntary carbon markets, um, somewhat akin to the way Australia's um, approached
0: um, the ACCU scheme. Obviously we've covered a lot in today's discussion uh, and you know and a lot is happening in the market. From your perspective for everyone listening at home, for you, what are the key takeaways? Well what I really wanted to get across today was, you know,
1: there one, there's two types of uh, markets, so it's really important when we're thinking about, when we're reading about carbon markets to distinguish, you know, is that commentary about voluntary carbon markets this is around the compliance carbon markets? Because as we've talked about, they're different. They both have a role to play, um, but they, all, they also have their different nuances. Um, It's also important to recognise that voluntary carbon markets will never be a full substitute for real economy decarbonisation. So that's really important. Um, They provide a price signal on carbon. They help scale climate solutions. They also can accelerate decarbonisation in the short term and perhaps in the long term, uh, in terms of hard-to-abate sectors. But they're just one tool in the toolkit. Regulation, that needs to be proportionate. So a lot of discussion about regulation Um, It should also leverage where possible the work of key um, voluntary carbon market's governance bodies um, to support greater standardisation and strengthen supply. Um, But it also needs to avoid uh, stifling innovation and further evolution of this very nascent market. Um, And I suppose the last point, the fourth point I would make, is just that that real important need to have ongoing, uh, open, meaningful cross-industry dialogue uh,
0: with a view to maximising Uh, the potential of voluntary carbon markets. Wonderful. Well, there's so much more we can chat about. But with that, unfortunately, we're out of time. So Matthew Chan has sustainability and ESG engagement for Asia Pacific with JP Morgan Chase. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Brad.